name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. For the last, I guess maybe a month or so, we've been looking at the last hours of Jesus' life, and we've been specifically focusing in on something that Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I know most of you that are listening to me this morning, you you know the story well, but just in case you don't, let me kind of just give us a little bit of backdrop. Uh, this has been an, a, a packed evening for Jesus, and it began earlier that, uh, that Thursday night with... Uh, the, the disciples getting together for the celebration of the Passover meal. And Jesus had converted that meal, that Passover meal, into something different for those of us that would follow him in the future. We call it communion, we call it the Lord's Supper, but he took the elements of the Passover meal and he made that meal to be about himself and about what was going to transpire later on that evening. The, the whole night was busting with all kinds of consequential teaching from Jesus, beginning actually in that room and then all the way through the evening when they're traveling. They're, they're going to leave what we call the upper room. They're in a room above uh, on the second floor, if you would, of a house, and they're in a large room. They've left that. They're heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is teaching them all the way, and when he gets to the garden, what he does is he pulls aside from all of his disciples, and he prays, and he prays for quite a while. He, he actually has like three intervals of prayer, and in each one of those times, this is what he's praying and what he's asking for. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. So he keeps talking about this cup. He would tell Peter later that night that this is the cup that God is asking him to drink. And, but he keeps praying, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Three times. At the end of each time of prayer, he would, say to, uh, he would say to the Father, Father, but not my will, but yours be done. In other words, I want this cup to pass, but I'm willing to drink it if it's what you want me to do. So the question we've been looking at is, what is in this metaphorical cup that Jesus is talking about? What was it that he was about to drink? And we said that there would be a lot of painful experiences that he would have to drink from that cup. He'd be betrayed uh, by, by Judas. He'd be denied by Peter. Uh, I think he considered both of them friends. He would uh, have to go through two mockery trials. He would then uh, be rejected by the very people that he came to rescue. So those things were all in the cup. But I want to suggest to you this morning that they were mere precursors to what was the heart of the cup that Jesus was about to drink. Now most commentators uh, over the centuries have, have read into that cup that it was the wrath of God, that the wrath of God was what Jesus didn't want to drink in that cup. Now there's a number of passages in the Bible that connect the wrath of God with this imagery of a cup. Here's a, here's a few examples. Jeremiah 25, 15. It's going to be right here on the screen beside me. But it says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send, send uh, you drink it. Isaiah 51, 17, another verse. O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath and have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of his, 
the, the bowl, the cup of staggering. And then one more verse from Revelation. This is um, from one of the angels. It says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So it seems pretty consistent for uh, Bible theologians, for theologians to assume that the cup that Jesus was going to drink that night, that he didn't want to drink, had the wrath of God against sin in it. Jesus was going to drink, if you would, the wrath of God against all of humanity. Now, somebody recently pointed out to me, and I'd never really thought about this, but, but it's true, that it doesn't say in the text that, that the cup Jesus was drinking was the wrath of God. It never says that anywhere. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus is dealing with James. James and John, they've come and asked for the two best spots in the kingdom. And uh, this is what he says to them. Listen, he says, you don't know what you're asking. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? So he's obviously talking about this same cup, and he's asking them if they're going to drink of it. And they say, we are able. And he told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those uh, for whom it has been prepared by my father. So, so here's the thought. If the disciples are going to drink from the same cup that Jesus drank, how is that the wrath of God? And that's really a good question. But I think there's a relatively simple answer. We have to start by asking ourselves, what is the wrath of God? And uh, so let me say, first of all, that the wrath of God is not that God, that God is so emotionally angry that he has to you know, uh, let off steam by blasting someone or something. The wrath of God is not that God is just bursting with anger, that he's somehow uncontrollable. We've all seen on TV when someone has a fit of rage or wrath and how they'll punch a wall or they'll blow something up or they'll hit somebody or they'll just go off on them emotionally to relieve that anger pressure. That is not what the wrath of God is at all. What does the Bible say? Well, here, here's what I suggest the Bible says is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God's justice, God's holy, righteous justice against, uh, against sin. The wrath of God, uh, what does the wrath of God produce? If the wrath of God is the righteous judgment of God against sin, what does it produce? Well, here it is. The wrath of God really demands the wages of death against sin. The wrath of God is God exacting death for our sin. So the Bible says things like the wages of sin is death. The punishment of Adam and Eve, for instance, their sin would be that they would die. The Bible says that the soul that sins will die. John 3.36, which is a really familiar verse. It comes on the heels of John 3.16. But uh, here's what the verse says. It's right here on the, on, the, on the screen. It says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay, But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him or abides on him. So here, here's what that means. That means that the wrath of God leads to our death. We don't see life. We see death. The wrath of God is, is, is the wrath of God against us is demanding our death. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 28, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
The wrath of God is God's righteous judgment against sin. And God's righteous judgment against people's sin is their death, our destruction. Jesus spoke of the narrow path that leads to life and the broad road that leads to destruction or leads to our death. In that cup, I believe with all my heart, in that cup that Jesus drank was God's righteous judgment against us, which is our death. He drank our death. Death was in the cup. Jesus died for us. He surrendered his life and wasn't alive anymore. And so what Jesus did by drinking the cup was he, he drank our death for us so that we don't have to permanently die. We get to live again. Let me read you some verses here. So I'm going to put them on the screen right here. 1 Corinthians 15, well, actually, I didn't write them down. I just put the numbers. Let me read them here, and you, you, you can look them up or write them down if you're taking notes. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says, For I delivered to you as first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.9-10, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then Romans 5.6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen, here's what was in the cup that Jesus drank. It was death. It was death. It was the wrath of God against sin, which is death. Jesus drank our death for us on the cross. Now this morning, what I'd like us to do, it's Palm Sunday, and what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to visit the cross. I'd like us to take a journey, if you would, to Golgotha, you know, the hill on which Jesus uh, was crucified. Now, if you're, already, if you're already a follower of Jesus, you've already been to the cross because, you know, you, you, don't, you don't follow Jesus without going to the cross. You go to the cross first, and, and from there is grace. You, you see his grace, you see his love, and you begin to follow him. But, but it's always good for us to go back to the cross and, and, uh, and visit it again. But maybe you're with us this morning in this worship time where we're all together and uh, and you've and you've never been to the cross maybe you're not a follower of Jesus I, I really want to take you to the cross I want you to see some things that happened that day um, at the cross so we're going to journey to the cross this morning using John using John 19 as our travel as our travel map if you would so if you have your Bibles turn in them to John chapter 19 we're going to look at verse 16 through verse 37 now, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to follow along, okay? I'm, I'm going to read the text, but if you, have a, if you have a Bible on your phone, open that. Or if you have a hard copy of a Bible, open that, but follow along. I'm going to be reading from what's called the uh, Christian Standard Bible. And, uh, but you can follow along in any, any uh, version that you want. So let's begin this, uh, this journey to the cross. And I want to do so by looking at the road that actually led to the cross. John chapter 19, verse 16. 
Then he handed him over to uh, be crucified. And they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went out uh, to what is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. In Latin, we call it Calvary, by the way. There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side with Jesus in the middle. So Jesus was with Pilate. You remember when it says, and he handed him over, it's talking about Pilate. Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. And uh, Jesus would be, be carried to the cross. He would actually only be on the cross, they say, less than six hours, which was a very short amount of time for a man in, in which a man would die by hanging on a cross. But to get to the cross, he, he had to, and I've kind of confused things here. I forgot to change that. I was going to change that to the road to the cross because I'm, I'm talking about a journey. This whole talk is going to be a journey to the cross. But, but there is a journey, an actual road to where Jesus would be crucified from Pilate's, from Pilate's um, palace to the actual hill on which Jesus would die. And uh, in that, on that road there, we, we've, we've termed that road, or we've called that road the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrow, or the way of suffering. And, uh, and on that road that Jesus traveled to the cross, you know, John tells us that he was conscripted to carry his own cross. Jesus was supposed to carry his own cross, and he evidently started out. Now, if we add the other gospel accounts to get a fuller picture, we'll know that on the way up to the cross, uh, on to the way to the hill, Jesus just couldn't bear the cross anymore. He'd been whipped. You remember he'd been whipped uh, 39 times. His back was most, most off was most likely raw and uh, lost a lot of blood. He was weak. He carried it, couldn't carry it all the way, and he fell into the weight of it. Along the way, the Romans conscripted a guy, another guy by the name of Simon, and Simon would carry the cross the rest of the way uh, up, to, uh, up to Golgotha, up to Calvary. Along the way, um, along the way Jesus is, uh, is not alone. Uh, he is with two other men. Um, John tells us that, that Jesus is crucified in the middle of the two other men. They were both uh, robbers and thieves. Uh, one of them would actually confess later on in the, in the afternoon that he deserved what he was getting. But, uh, but that's the journey that Jesus took, or that's the road that Jesus took to the cross. Now, in this journey, I want you to see the agony of the cross, and I'm not, I really, I can't even point to it in the text because John doesn't, doesn't point to the agony of the cross, but let me talk about it for just a bit. We see so much make-believe in the world, don't we? I mean, we watch movies, and it's all make-believe, and we've really lost a sense of, uh, of what's real, but when it comes to the cross of Jesus, this was real, everyone. There was no stuntman to fill in for Jesus. There was no fake blood, no rubber nails, no, no paper cross. This was all for real. And so when we combine the accounts and we read things like they punched Jesus in the face, I mean, they really hit him. They really hit him with their fists. When they spit on him, and we're not talking about spittle, everyone. I imagine they coughed up those big loogies and they spit them on our Savior. This was real. When they whipped him, it was real. It wasn't, it wasn't make-believe. It wasn't fake. When he was nailed, his hands were really nailed on the cross. And, I mean, they were really nailed. You probably know this, but we, we let, let, lots of times think of them nailing here, but they didn't nail here. They say they nailed here so that the hand wouldn't pull out from the nails and be held by the bones. Jesus, Jesus was in agony on the cross. 
You know, a few years ago, Mel Gibson tried to portray this in the Passion of the Cro- the Passion of Jesus, I think it was called, or the Passion. About, you know, and he well, he did a good job of making it just as bloody and gory as he could, and and just trying to reveal the agony of the cross. I remember when I was a young man back in 1986, the American Medical Association came out with a clinical analysis of Jesus' death. And uh, with all kinds of charts and, and all kinds of pictures, they talked about, you know, just what uh, an excruciating death crucifixion was for, for anyone. And of course, in our case here, what we're talking about, what an excruciating death it was for the Lord Jesus. They talk about how that most people died from hypovolic, hypo, hypovolemic shock or exhaustion, asphyxia, asphyxia. Not sure I'm saying that right. But in other words, the, people died from not being able to breathe. They were they're asphyxiated. And I've always heard that that's how Jesus died. That uh, you know when you're hanging on a cross, you're nailed there by your hands and by your feet. And uh, the weight of your body as you hang there presses down on your diaphragm. And at some point, the, the weight of your body is so heavy you cannot breathe. So the only way you can breathe is to lift yourself up on the nails, to pull yourself up by the nails in your feet and in your hands. And, of course, that would be excruciatingly painful. And you'd pull yourself up and take a breath, and then you'd go back to hanging on the, on the nails well, that's how, that's how Jesus died. And, uh, and the MAA said, a- AMA said, crucifixion had a catastrophic effect on breathing, the heart, the body in general. It was a horrible, horrible death. Now, in the count that we just read a minute ago, you'll notice that John spares us all of that gore. John doesn't talk about it. He just says, and there they crucified him. But in this journey, I don't want us to forget that the cross was agony for the Lord Jesus. Maybe John doesn't mention the agony because the central point of the cross is the death of Jesus. It's not even all the agony that went along with it, although that that plays a part in how Jesus died. The The central truth of the cross is that there Jesus died. But don't forget, he died in agony for us. On this journey to the cross, I want you to see the humiliation of of the cross. And we're going to pick up in verse 19. Pilate, I'm I'm reading uh, John 19, verse 19. Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. And it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to, the, said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. And they also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven uh, in one piece from the, top, from the top. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that says they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. Now, it's not just that there's physical agony on the cross for Jesus. There is humiliation on the cross. 
and they mocked Jesus. Now John records something for us that the other gospels don't, this exchange over the signage above Jesus where Pilate had written the king of the Jews and they said, we don't want it to say the king of the Jews. We wanted to say, he says I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. That sign in itself is, is supposed to be a mockery of the Lord Jesus because he was the king of the Jews. He's the king, he's the creator, he's the king of all. And so, but this is meant to be a mockery. The other gospels, as we had combined the accounts, they mock Jesus the whole time he's on the cross. They would stand down on the ground at his feet, they would look up at him, and they would say, the guy who healed others, you know, come off the cross. If you really are who you say you are, come off the cross. And uh, they mocked him. The Bible tells us that even the two men that are hanging there dying beside him, you know, they're mocking Jesus at first, both of them. Now, the, the Bible tells us, Luke's account tells us that at some point one of them changes his mind and, uh, you know, and he, he changes his mind and repents. But at the beginning, everyone is mocking Jesus. But here's one other thing in, as far as the humiliation of Jesus that I want you to understand. In Bible times, to be exposed in your nakedness was an extremely shameful thing. And it is even in our culture today, although in many ways it's losing its shame. But even in our culture today, to you know, if, if, if you were caught downtown naked, you'd be pretty ashamed by that. Well, in this crucifixion of Jesus, they don't spare his modesty. They humiliate the Savior by stripping him naked. And John's account tells us that, quoting from Psalm 22, I mean, in, in fulfillment of Psalm 22, the soldiers, there's evidently four of them, there's four pieces of clothing that Jesus had. They, they uh, divided those up, probably, I guess, cast lots for those. And then there was one piece left, this, this tunic, probably the best piece, and it was seamless, and they didn't want to rip it, and so they cast lots for it. The whole time, Jesus is hanging naked, uh, on the cross before them. So in this journey, don't forget the humiliation that Jesus bore for us. And I'm gonna talk about that in a few more minutes and I, I hope I can remember what I'm telling you right this moment. In this journey to the cross, I want you to notice the care from the cross. We're at verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Ma and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Now John records something for us that none of the other Gospels record, and that is Jesus caring for his mother. So there at the feet of Jesus is Mary uh, the mother, Jesus' mother, along with some other women. And we find that John the Apostle is there as well. We know he's, he's the one who wrote this book, and he never calls himself, he never names himself, he always calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning of this, this study, let me just repeat this. Um, John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, not because he's trying to say, Jesus loved me and didn't love anybody else. He's trying to say, this is how I felt. I was, I was a disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved. Jesus loved me. That's what he's trying to say here. So he's the, he's the disciple whom Jesus loved standing at the cross. 
I've often heard since I, you know, became a follower of Jesus that John was the only one that was at the cross. We're never told that. He's the only one mentioned. Maybe, the, maybe Peter and some of the other guys were standing in the back of the crowd. You know, maybe they didn't go. I, I don't know. But it really is insightful, isn't it, that John was standing right there. And Jesus, in all of this agony, in all of this humiliation, before his mother, before John, before these women that he loved, that had you know, been a part of his ministry, he looks down from the cross, and in the midst of all of that, he has enough presence of mind and heart to love his mother and to care for his mother and, and to cherish his mother because he says, to John, he says to her, Mom, there's your son. Son, there's your mom. Now, I don't know about you, but I wonder why did Jesus do that? I mean, Jesus had other brothers and sisters. James would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That was his brother. You know, is he thinking that James isn't going to take care of Mary? And, and I, don't have, I don't have an answer for this. I mean, this is my speculation, but maybe, maybe James and them were, you know, at some point they were not following Jesus. Maybe they haven't become believers yet. And so maybe because Mary is a believer and John is a believer, maybe it's because, because of that Jesus is saying, in this context right now, while my brothers are not following me, hey, John, take care of my mother. And it says that Mary went into his home. Uh, he took her into his home to take care of her, you know, after, after that. So we have the care from the cross. Now, that brings us to, what, in this journey to the cross, the, the next thing that I want you to see, and that is the sufficiency of the cross. And, and really, everyone, if you've been tuning me out, this is the place I'd really like you to tune back in because this is probably the most important thing that I want to say in, in, in this talk, in this journey to the cross. This is the, this is the thing I really want you to get. So we're going to pick up in verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they, they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, there's a whole lot more I could add to this, but let me just add one more thing from Matthew's account. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, uh, Jesus said, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So Jesus has been forsaken by the religious leadership which is not a big deal because they, they never really followed him, but he was, they were forsake, he was forsaken by them. He was forsaken by his family. He was forsaken by his disciples, by his friends. And now he's saying, God, why have you forsaken me? He, he's felt forsaken by the Father. He was about to die. In fact, when he says what he's going to, so what he says it is finished, he, he does die. Now, Jesus has been drinking the Father's cup. He's drank, as we've said already, betrayal, denial, false accusations, human rejection. But here on the cross, he's drinking the final dregs of that cup. And that is he's drinking death. He's drinking his death. And when he does, he says, it is finished. It's complete. It's done. What I would like you to see from this journey to the cross is I'd like you to see that the cross accomplishes everything that we need for us to have eternal life, abundant life, life with God. 
Probably the greatest recovery of the Protestant Reformation uh, is what we call uh, sola fide, or, or by faith alone, in Christ alone. The finished work of Christ is sufficient for our salvation. In Hebrews chapter 10, in the New Testament, we read this. It says, and this is the author of Hebrews is writing, he says, talking about Jesus, he then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. Now the author of Hebrews is talking about the first covenant, the old covenant, the Old Testament. He takes it away to establish this new covenant. By this will, he continues, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. Now the author of Hebrews is looking back on the Old Testament and he says the priest every, every day, day after day, offers these sacrifices week after week, year after year. He said, but they never, they never do away with our sins once and for all. Jesus, on the other hand, was a sacrifice who sacrificed himself one time for sins forever and has sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. In other words, Jesus in his death on the cross was sufficient once and for all to take care of our sin problem. What's our sin problem? Well, the wages of sin is death. The problem is that we die. Jesus took that away. Paul would put it like this. He would say, in a letter he wrote to a church, he would say, for by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any of us should boast. In other words, we are resting in the sufficient and finished work of Jesus when he drank that cup and he drank our death on the cross. It's all been done. There's nothing else for you and me to do other than to receive the work that Jesus has done. You know, all too often we're thinking that you know, I have, to, I have to add to my goodness. You know, God's going God's to measure my moral character. And if it, if, it, if it measures up to a certain standard, he's going to accept me. The Bible says, no, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. He died for us so that we won't have to die, but we shall live. He did it all. And the only thing that I have to do is to respond to God's gracious gift. I have to be willing to receive Jesus, to trust Jesus. Here's what the Bible says. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without trusting God, it's impossible to please him. In other words, good works and good efforts and moral character, I mean, those are good things. Don't misunderstand me. But, but those aren't what make us right with God. It is trusting in God. And he goes on to say, without faith, it's impossible to please God because we must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder, that he rewards with life those who seek him. So, so, my responsibility is to seek the Lord, to love the Lord, to trust the Lord, to put my faith in him. Jesus did the work for me. He was sufficient. And that's why he said on the cross, it is finished. It's done. It's all taken care of. That's why the author of Hebrews says after he had, after he had done that, he sat down at the right hand of the Father because there is nothing else to do. Jesus did it for us. You just simply have to trust him and follow him. Now, if I could, you know, before I go on to my last point, I'm almost done. 
I'd like to talk to you about what the cross was sufficient to actually do in our lives. I want to give you three things. There's so many more things I'm sure that I could, could point to that the cross was sufficient to do this, but I want to give you three. And I'm, this, is, this, is the, this is the heart of my talk. This is where I really want you to, to listen in. Here's the first thing. The cross, the cross was sufficient to purchase your forgiveness. The cross was sufficient so that you could be forgiven by God. It was sufficient for you to get forgiveness. Here's what, here's what Paul said to the Ephesian church. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. You see it right there? We have the forgiveness of our sins in Christ because of what he did, because of his death, according to the riches of his grace. You see, sin brings death. Jesus' death forgives us. He purchases our resurrection by his death. He, in other words, he purchases our uh, ability, our um, legal right, if you would, to live again. And by willing to die for us, Jesus bought us back from death. He did that by being willing to submit to death himself. Now earlier I talked about the humiliation of Jesus, about how he hung naked on a cross. Well listen, beloved, Jesus humbled himself long before the cross. The Bible says that though he was equal with God, this is in a letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church, chapter 2, beginning of verse 5. Though Jesus was equal to God, he did not consider that equality with God something to, to grasp or to hold on to, but he emptied himself of it. And it's, it goes on to say that he became a person like us. He took on our humanity, took on our flesh. Our, he, he, he took on our humanity, and he lived like us, but not as a rich king. He, he lived as a, as a poor man. And, and, then, and then it says, but not just, he, not, he didn't just become a man, but he became a man and submitted himself, lowered himself even unto death. And then it says, even to death on a cross. The death of Jesus, the cross, is sufficient to purchase our forgiveness from God. We are forgiven. I, I tell you, I, I speak for myself, but I know I'm speaking for you. We, we've all done things we're so ashamed of. We've all done things that we know are so wrong before God. We know they're wrong because God's put it in us what's right and wrong, and we know what we've done is wrong. And God offers us forgiveness by, because the wages of sin is death. That's what I deserve. But Jesus dies for me. He purchases my forgiveness. Let me move on. This cross is also sufficient, not just for our forgiveness, but it's sufficient to remove my fear it's sufficient to remove your fear. And what is your fear? Let me ask you this. Are you afraid of the hell of Buddhism? You say, what in the world is the hell of Buddhism? I don't know either, but I understand it's a, it's a terrible thing. How about the hell of Islam? Are you afraid of the hell of Islam? No, of course you're not afraid of those things because you don't believe in them. You don't believe in Buddhism, so you're not afraid of the hell of Buddhism. You don't believe in, uh, in Islam, you're not, the, you're not afraid of the hell of Islam. You know, here, this might be a shock to you, but most people are not afraid of the hell of the, uh, of the Christian church. They're not afraid of eternal conscious torment that the church has been preaching for centuries. You know why? Because they don't believe in it. So they're not afraid of it. But listen to me, you know what the Bible says that all men are afraid of? I know you figured this out. They're afraid of dying. Every man everywhere is afraid of dying. And yeah, I know, I know there's anomalies. I know there's exceptions that people might want to die. But, but generally speaking, all men, men and women, we're all afraid of dying. We don't want to die. 
We don't want to not have our life anymore. We're afraid of not living anymore. We're afraid of dying. Now listen to Hebrews. Here's the author of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 14. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, since we all have, every person has flesh and blood, in common, Jesus also shared in these. So God himself became like us, all right? He took on our humanity, our flesh and blood. Now listen, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, the adversary, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So Again, let me just let me let me restate that. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Jesus became like us, flesh and blood, so that by his death he might liberate us all from the fear of death. You see, the the, the power of the fear of death, it, it holds sway over all of us. We're all afraid of dying. But now because Jesus has died and has conquered death and lives again, we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. We are not afraid of death anymore. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, we're no longer afraid anymore. The cross is sufficient to rid us of our fears. You know, the biggest fear of COVID, well, part of it is the unknown, but the biggest fear of COVID is that it's killing people. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore, beloved, because Jesus has liberated us. The cross is sufficient to rid us of our fears. And then the last thing about the cross, it's sufficient to give us life. And I know there's many more things I could say, but these are the three that I want to tell you. It is sufficient to give you life. And here, this is a corollary to the, the previous point. The reason we're not afraid to die anymore is because the cross gives us life. Jesus gave his life so that we could live. His death means that your death is not permanent. Your death is temporary. It's but a moment in time. And his death is sufficient to cover your death. And by his grace, you will be raised from the dead. You have life. God submitted to death. Jesus submitted to death. Surrendered his life so that your, de- so that your death would not be the end of you. But rather, you will rise and you will live again. Listen, I... If, you're, if you happen to drop in on this worship time and you're listening to me by some chance and you are in search of immortality, you would like to live forever or you would like to have life in a place that is, um, is joyful without, without the marring of selfishness and evil, if you would like to have life like that, listen, I'm offering it to you in Jesus' name because that's what Jesus accomplished for us. He laid down his life so that you could live again in his kingdom. Oh man, how I hope you would take him up on that and you would, you would follow after Jesus. And anyway, he wants to give you life and immortality and, and, and not just, let me say this, and not just immortality in the future, but he wants to give you abundant life now. He wants to give you eternal life now. He wants to give you the promise so that you know you shall live forever now. He wants to give you all of that now. All right, that brings me to, in our journey to the cross, that brings me to the, to the last thing I want you to note in this journey, and that is the evidence on the cross. Verse 31, let's read to the end of our text, which is verse 37. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the 
the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate uh, have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. And he who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. Now right there, John's talking about himself. He saw that. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth. I, John's basically saying, I know I'm telling the truth. For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. No one of his, not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look at the one they pierced. Now, what happens here in, in John's final verses of, about the cross? I mean, it is to authenticate two things about Jesus. It is evidence of two things. Number one, that Jesus died. No swoon theories. Here, here's what I mean by that. After Jesus died, the Jews began to say things like, well, he didn't really die on the cross. And uh, he came back to life later on after he had, been his, had his wounds attended. You know, that's what they were saying. This, this is to prove that he had died. Well, you know, what they would do, this was the, this was the preparation day for the Sabbath. The Sabbath began at 6 p.m. They, they would break the legs of the crucified so that, remember I told you how that you die from asphyxiation? Well, if your legs are broken, you've got to lift your whole body weight by your arms. I mean, you're going to die really, really soon after they break your legs because you don't have any strength to lift your body so you can breathe. So they'd break the legs to make them die quickly. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because he was already dead. And, and to prove it, they stab him. They stab him in the side. Water and blood comes out, a, a divide there. And medically, I understand, I'm not a doctor, but I understand that that's a sign of death, that there begins to be this division. And that division between water and blood was a sign that Jesus was dead. So this, this was evidence that Jesus had died, but it's something else as well. It's evidence that Jesus was this Messiah King that God had been promised all along. They God had been promising all along. And, and we see that in two ways. Number one, his bones were not broken. Messiah's bones were never to be broken. They did not break any of Jesus' bones. And the other was that stabbing of the spear. Back in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah, talking about the coming king one day, said, And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas of mer for mercy, so that they will look on me, on whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. His piercing on the cross identified him as the one that Zechariah had promised was going to come. And what Zechariah says, on the day when Jesus returns and all the dead are raised from, from the grave and, and they live again, they will see Jesus and they will mourn him that they crucified and that they pierced with that uh, sword that day. So the cross itself in so many ways was, was evidence, was evidence for us that Jesus was who the Bible claimed he was, who he claimed he was. That day on the cross, I believe Jesus drank the wrath of God against my sin. I think Jesus drank my death for me that day, and he died for me, and he also died for you as well. And because he did, you and I can live again. We can live again. The Roman practice of crucifixion will remain one of the most gruesome and humiliating and obscene methods 
of, of executing people that the world has ever known. It was so horrible that sophisticated Greeks and Romans, they never talked about, about crucifixion in any kind of public setting or any kind of a polite company. So the early Christians, they were constantly ridiculed for the fact that they believed that God himself had become one of us, which in, that in itself was something they ridiculed, but that that God-man would die on a cross for the Romans and the Greeks, that was absolute absurdity. It was, it was crazy. This idea is illustrated by a graffito that was found in, uh, the second, from the second century in, uh, in Rome on a wall of a house that they believe was, was used for training imperial pages. And, um, and on the wall they found this, this graffito. And I think I have a picture of it. I, mean, I forgot to put it in. So I had a picture of it, but you can look it up. A graffito from Rome, second century. And in this picture, it's a crude stick picture, but there is a man with his arm raised to a man being crucified, but the man on the cross has the head of a donkey. And underneath that, uh, and underneath that, that crucifixion are these words, Alexamenos Sebete Theon, which means Alexamenos worships God. That cartoon is in a museum in Rome now. But that cartoon was meant to be, meant to show the laughability and the ridiculousness of the Jews and Christians, or not the Jews, but the Christians worshiping a man who had been crucified. That drawing was meant to depict that it was like worshiping a donkey for them to worship Jesus who had been crucified. However, for the Christians, the cross became their symbol of faith in Jesus in spite of this, this constant ridicule, in spite of the, you know, the, the social stigma that the cross had, the Christians cherished the cross. Now for us today, we wear the cross. We have it on our stage here. We, we see it everywhere. It's, 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 it's fashionable to have a cross. But in those days, it wasn't. And yet the Christians held tenaciously to the cross as their symbol. Why? Because they understood that it was the death of Jesus that liberates us from our own death and gives us eternal life with God through the forgiveness of our sin. Now this Palm Sunday morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, man, I want you to rest in the cross. I want you to cherish the cross. I invite you this morning to just to bow your heads and your hearts and to be thankful to God for the cross. For the cross is where our forgiveness comes from. If you're here this morning and being a part of our worship time and, uh, and you've not been to the cross, you're not following Jesus, I, man, I want to invite you to come to the cross of Jesus and follow and follow Jesus. I want you to follow him with all your heart. Would you do that? I mean, if, if, God, is, if God is drawing you and, and prompting your heart, would you, right there, in the, you're, you're by yourself most likely or in your home with just a few people watching this, being a part of this, would you right there just bow your heart and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, I want to belong to you. If he's, if, he's, if he's tugging on your heart, you just do that right now. Here, let me close this time together in prayer. Father, we do just thank you for the cross. We are amazed that you would become like us and then be willing to experience death so that we 
could live again. Man, what an incredible thing. Thank you for being willing to enter into death, Jesus, for us. Thank you for being willing to humble yourself and be humiliated by us, your creatures, as you did. How we love you. And on this uh, Sunday in preparation for next week as we celebrate the fact that you did not stay dead but you conquered death, Lord, we just want to I just want to again say thank you for the cross. Thank you for uh, working in our lives to change us. Lord, would you change us to be more and more like Jesus all the time. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.